Deuteronomy chapter 5, the verses 22 through 33. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now let's turn ahead to chapter 18. And there we'll read the verses 9 through 22. So the Lord had told them that following his ways they would live long in the land they would possess. Now we can pick up at Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So our text is in view of the great prophet coming, whose coming we celebrate later this week. Verses 14 to 16. Moses says, For these nations which are about, you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we gather here this morning, and we have those online who are joining us just less than seven days before we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be able to celebrate with family and friends in the ways that we normally do. That would be a sad thing and a loss, but at the same time, our hearts will be directed to what is this celebration about? Why do we mark the birth? of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what really happened there at Christmas in Bethlehem, or even nine months before with the conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. What do we celebrate at Christmas, and what did God accomplish at Christmas? Now, I have a number of books that help preachers with little illustrations and such. And for some preachers, those just naturally flow out of them. They talk and they come up with illustrations left, right, and center. And others might use a book now and then. And one of the illustrations that was memorable to me and I think connects to what we're working on here with this God speaking from Mount Sinai and the people being afraid, it was this farmer sitting at his kitchen table in the evening and hearing a tap, 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 tap on the window and he didn't think anything of it, and then a little while later, tap, 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 and finally he went over and he looked, and there was a little sparrow tapping on his window, and it was very cold outside, and the sparrow seemed to be saying, I want to come in. But when the big farmer came and opened the door, the bird flew away. So he thought, well, what do I do? It won't come in the house. It's too scared. So he put some crackers down, and he opened the barn door, and he 
put some straw there and thought, now the bird will come into the barn, but the bird didn't come there either. And he sat down at his table, kind of sad, and tap, tap, tap on his window. And suddenly he thought, if only I could become a bird, then I could, have, could tell this little birdie, come over here, here, warmth, food, and the bird wouldn't be afraid of me. And the illustration then was to suggest that that's what God did in the incarnation, the great, awesome, mighty God who terrorizes people by his appearing and his thundering and holiness of fire comes and takes human form and makes himself accessible to us. There's something that that teaches that's good. But if you think about it for a while and you think, is that also suggesting that God has a certain inability, a helplessness to, to bridge that gap from himself to us by speaking? Is he unable to do so apart from the incarnation? Well, let's think about that as we go through our text this morning. And as we do so, we keep in mind what the Lord has taught us in Hebrews chapter 1, that in the past, the Lord spoke to our fathers at many times and in various ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. His Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What a remarkable thing to be said about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose coming we celebrate at Christmas. And with our text and this emphasis on God speaking to his people and making sure that when Moses is gone, there will be a new prophet to convey the word of God, we see here that to show the way of salvation unto Christ, our God speaks with power. So to show the way of salvation unto Christ, because this text is long before our Lord Jesus comes, God speaks with power. So hear him. And you could say in view of Sinai, see him in view of the, um, the glory to come in the new creation. Not just hear him, but see him, believe him, obey him. So first of all, we want to see that God speaks directly. And the backdrop to the words of Moses here is what we read in Deuteronomy 5, after God, God's actual voice that is heard by the people in an, with real words, thundering from the mountain, I am Yahweh your God. You think about what that must have been like for them. Literally, trembling in their boots and their knees are knocking and they're not allowed to come near the mountain. The whole thing is in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and they are terrorized. They really are afraid. They actually think they're going to die if this carries on. Maybe die of fright or just die because they're in the presence of the holy God and they're unholy. And that's the, the background of this holy God speaking audibly to his people. And it, you think, is, is this then like God, like the really big but well-intentioned farmer? Or is this a whole lot more? This is the God of power, the God of glory, the creator. And speaking in such a way as to awe his people and make them long for a mediator. After all, we know that God could also speak through a small whisper. 
as he did for his prophet Elijah, in the same place, by the way, Mount Sinai area. So God can do this in different ways, and he chooses and intentionally chooses how to reveal himself in order to evoke a certain response from his people. That's something good to keep in mind. So that's the one piece of the backdrop here. And the other thing is that when God had spoken in that really awesome way, that was 40 years before this text. The whole book of Deuteronomy is like a long sermon that Moses gives at the end of his life when the people have trekked through the desert for 40 years and they stand on the other side of the Jordan hoping to go across soon. And God is going to take Moses home to himself and Moses will not be allowed to cross over into the promised land. So this is 40 years after the giving of the law, but that giving of the law was such a momentous event that no one was ever to forget it. And each time we hear God's law every Sunday, we're also not to forget the awesomeness of God in the first speaking of his law at Sinai. And so the Lord says, when you come into this land that I'm giving you, this is what Moses says from God, there are these people there who practice divination. They cast spells, they consult mediums, and um, they, they consult the dead, and they um, try to keep evil spirits away, and you're not to be like them. Now we have to put this into a, a framework. Why did these nations do this? Well, fundamentally, they were wanting the gods to speak to them. They wanted some knowledge of the future. What will happen to me? And they wanted some control of their lives. If possible, there must be some way they could control the inexorable fate that just comes upon them. And so what you do is you connect with the world of the divine, and we know there are real demons in this world that they're connecting with. They're not God themselves, but they get worshipped as gods, and they go about as if they are gods. And so the people try to bribe these idols and the demons behind them. If I give you this, then you should give me that. They cajole them, and they try to manipulate them. They beg them, and they try to trick them, quite frankly. If we think for a moment of Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal, he sets it up outdoors where they can't pull off some of their tricks of making fire and making it seem like magic. And there they are outdoors, and they slash themselves, and they chant, and they dance, and they jump, and they beg and plead and cajole Baal, answer us. And he can't because, well, probably you could say God won't let him. God is going to gain glory at that moment. And so what kinds of things did the nations do as they consulted ultimately with real demons? Well, they would bring a sacrifice to a, a priest, a kind of a, a magician or a wizard or so, who would then cut it open in exact ways and remove the liver and then look at the patterns on the liver. You can think of this just like someone reading your palm and looking at the lines on your palm and using that to tell you something about you to predict the future. This is how to, to inspect 
uh, livers or the flights of birds, to know something of the future. People would also write curses, and they would write the curse on a little piece of scroll and then uh, take that piece of scroll and roll it up and stick it under your doorway or put it somewhere where it's going to affect you. So that's like a hex. And people were deathly afraid of spells being cast on them, so one of the things they then did was wear an amulet, which was supposed to ward off these um, spells. A little bit like the function of a dream catcher in uh, Native North American uh, religion to catch those bad dreams and keep the evil away as you sleep. So the amulets then are for good luck. And you could think of, for example, the Greek uh, Delphic Oracle, famous for its little pithy sayings over many, many centuries, basically like the sort of statements you get in your fortune cookie. Pretty hard to discern, and probably you can figure out a way to make it apply to your life, like the horoscope. A 2017 survey found that 60% of Americans, and I don't think Canadians would be much different, in fact, it may well be a higher number, 60% believe in one of the following, in psychics, so consulting a psychic who's going to tell you something about yourself, in astrology, that's the horoscope and more, or in spiritual energy in inanimate objects. Spiritual energy in inanimate objects. You could even think of Marie Kondo and the organization of your house, and if you're going to get rid of something, you thank it for its contribution to your life first. That sort of thing. And in fact, witches actually act openly, have an online presence with a big following. They cast a um, curse on the New York Stock Exchange about a decade ago or something like that. Um, and they walk in the streets and, and gather around cauldrons. Quite frankly, they just do this in public. This is today's North America. And so you ask yourself, has secularism created a vacuum where there's nothing like People just aren't religious anymore? No, it is a vacuum, and a vacuum always sucks something into it, and people need some kind of religion, and they replace it with the same old mediums, spiritists, diviners, necromancers, wizards, witches, etc. Leviticus 20, verse 27, the Lord underlined just how evil this was. In no way, shape, or form were his people to take part in this. Leviticus 20, verse 27, A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And we can appreciate the kind of pull that this had for people. It feels like you're getting an answer from the gods or from God. So even King Saul, who tried to put this command into effect and rid the land of all such people like the night before his death in battle he's consulting this woman who calls up the spirit of Samuel for him and does so in trembling and fear because she says don't you know that Saul said all the people who do this are supposed to die and then she finds out perhaps even is told by a demon that this is actually Saul and she's so afraid You see the pull of these things, 
And God's people were to live by this promise, which, irony of ironies, God gave them through a pagan wizard of sorts, Balaam. Numbers chapter 23, verse 23, this Balaam is trying to curse God's people, and God will only let him bless, and this is what he says, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. God doesn't want his people to think that they can manipulate God, that they could trick him or cajole him. He's the omniscient God who knows everything. There isn't a second and a third God and a fourth and a whole pantheon of them who sort of jostle for positions and trick each other. There's one God, the all-knowing and the self-existing triune God. And so we cannot manipulate him or trick him, and he is the sovereign speaker. And when God speaks, he doesn't give you fortune cookie messages. The word of God is so clear. When God spoke and said, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. He used syllables which put together form words, which put together make sentences and use logic and make sense so that he actually communicates exactly what he wants to communicate. That's one of the big shortcomings of the illustration we started with. The farmer wants to communicate with the birds, but he can't. But God, remember, God is infinite and glorious. God is not restricted and unable to communicate with us. He created us. He created language. He can communicate with us when he chooses to do so. And when he does so, he does so with utmost clarity. That's why we take the word of God literally to be true. So with a clear, audible voice and sentences, ideas, commands, and promises, God speaks directly. What a wonder, what a joy for us. Nevertheless, now we start to come then to our second point, that God speaks through prophets. Nevertheless, when God speaks and shows the way of salvation unto Christ, he wants his people first to understand just how awesome and glorious he is. And so that's why at Sinai he humbles them. And then they call out for a mediator. And the Lord says, that's good. We would think, well, don't you want to be in the presence of God and hear his voice and be so sustained and strengthened in your inner being that you can just boldly walk through life without a fear. Well, actually, for sinners, God has ordained that it doesn't just go that way. A sinner in the presence of God needs to be humbled and needs to know that his approach to God is going to have to take a certain form, a form of humble request and a form of trust and faith through a mediator. And so God tells Moses that when the people ask for a go-between, it is good. That's surprising, but instructive. It is good because now we can see with the benefit of so many thousands of years of hindsight and, and so much 
wonderful work of God and the sending of Jesus Christ, we can look back and say, yes, that was good because the people needed to receive a mediator. And their longing and their desire for such a mediator, a go-between and a mouthpiece for God had to grow. They had to pray for this. They had to long for the Messiah. And they had to find one who would be a type of the Messiah, a type of Christ. And that's exactly how Moses serves in this text. So the nations you're about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and divination, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Right? Because he is sovereign and he is in control of his communication with his people, and they don't get to push him this way and that way and bargain with him and beg and cajole and trick him. We are on the receiving end and we worship. And then Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of your assembly when you said, Let me not hear the voice of Yahweh my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. So here Moses is reminding the people of their own request and God's approval of that request. And he has been the mouthpiece for 40 years. You, this is Moses. This is the Moses that, humanly speaking, created this nation out of a group of slaves in Egypt who'd been there for 400 years, probably a great many of them had forgotten the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses comes, and Moses reminds them, and Moses leads them out, even though he's very unwilling to do so at first. God reveals to him the whole way of sacrifice in the temple worship on the mountain, and Moses comes down, and he gives it to the people. He ordains Aaron and his sons, so Moses acts like a high priest himself in that capacity. And he is obviously the mouthpiece of God who meets with God face to face and whose shining face comes back to God's people to tell them what God has said to him. But now Moses is going to die. And there is in Moses' words here, a prophet like me, an admission of his own sin, whereby he was not allowed to go into the promised land and he acknowledges that at least three times um, in the book of Deuteronomy, that he had sinned, taking glory for himself at the rock, and so he couldn't go into the promised land. And he gives glory to God whenever he says that. But in his words, a prophet like me, there's an admission of his sin, and a, it seems a measure of sadness. And there would be a sadness for the people because this is the man who led them. This is the wise one who spoke the word of God and he will be gone. And who will take his place? That is the question. Then there's a measure of hope that God will raise up a prophet like me. God will. And you won't need a Balaam to come from the east to be the prophet. He'll be one from among your brothers. One who is himself an Israelite. And God will raise him up to be the mouthpiece in the place of Moses. And that's because in the promised land they're going to face all these temptations. Right? Verse 9, when you come into that land, don't follow all their abominable practices. 
They're going to fall into sin, and Saul is going to follow those practices. But under David and many of the Davidic kings, they did not follow the practices, or at least the king said they should not. We don't know what every person did, of course. But because they're going into the promised land, they need another leader who will be the mouthpiece of God precisely so that they don't feel the pull to go to the pagan ways of communicating with the gods and discerning the future. They need one like Moses to speak God's word to them. So as they're faced with many temptations, verse 14, the solution is verse 15, God will raise up a prophet and it is rooted in verse 16 that that's what they themselves had asked for at that great moment of Sinai. So there's to be a succession of prophets. And the people mustn't lose hope but seek the new Moses, which will be Joshua. And Joshua then also as a type of Christ, a leader of God's people, whose name in Greek would be Jesus, Yeshua. He will be the leader and he too will point the way to Christ. Now, as God speaks through prophets, God gives word through a prophet, and then he withdraws his word, and the people wait and they ask, and God gives his word again, and then he doesn't give his word. And one prophet gives his word and then dies, and another prophet gives God's word and dies. And there's precisely in that dying off of prophets and replacement of prophets a message from God that these prophets are not the final prophet. Their word is incomplete. God has yet to speak with his final word and his full word through a prophet who will not remain in death, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God takes away earthly leaders. Sometimes we we have a person we put a lot of hope in on this earth. We can put a lot of hope in a wonderful pastor. We can put a lot of hope in a political leader who's making good decisions and seems really firm and strong. And time and again, what happens? Our hopes are dashed. They're broken because earthly leaders fail. God takes them away. We can't ultimately put our hope in them. We need one, says Moses, like me. On the one hand, like, prophetic, On the other hand, like, but not just like, but much more. Much more. And that's where we need to um, go in the closing part of the sermon. As we think about the much more, the prophet like me from among your brothers, who is much more, well, how does the Apostle John speak of this? John 1, verse 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses... It's a great event in Israel's life and in the church's life, brothers and sisters. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. So even though Moses was face to face with God, yet in that fullness, full sense, he didn't see God. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, God of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John says God has spoken through his Son. And so we can now come back then to Hebrews chapter 1. That remarkable opening of this letter 
to the Hebrews, to the Jews who needed to know that that whole long system of sacrificing was completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those words to all those prophets had now come to their final expression and fullness. Long ago, Hebrews 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, plural. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, singular, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, he is God of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So now we have a prophet in whom you come face to face with God himself, whose word itself is not merely a repetition of the word of God, but is the word of God in the original sense by which he upholds the very universe. This is not just a prophet like me from among your brothers, but a prophet far greater than me from among your brothers. What a remarkable thing that God speaks through his son. And there are some final things that we should consider as we think about this wonderful um, gift of the Son of God and, it, and the contrast over against the pagan hopes and desires that the gods would speak, basically because of selfish reasons that people want to know their future. They want some kind of security against curses of their enemies and so on. But on the other hand, God's people have the Son of God so the nations have idols, and the idols have mouths, but they can't speak. God speaks. God speaks through the Old Testament prophets. God speaks through the New Testament. Jesus, directly through his Son, God himself, is speaking in the Son, and through the apostles, completing and interpreting and seeing the benefits and value of the coming of Jesus Christ. God speaks not just in cryptic little pithy sayings, but in full sentences with clear communication. And in his speaking, he brings himself to us. The Spirit takes the words, and the Spirit comes into our heart through the words and in the words, and dwells in our hearts to make the words come alive. And God does something with communication that people can't do, that idols can't even begin to do. And that no one can manipulate God into doing either. In his freedom and his sovereignty, he can speak in such a way as to transform a heart and a life and have an effect with his words. And we grow in our knowledge and in our understanding and we praise him. So idols have mouths, but they can't speak. But God speaks. Idols have feet, but they can't walk. God acts. And in the incarnation... Jesus Christ comes into this world and he walks among us. It's exactly how he is described in the scriptures. He pitched his tent among us, John 1 verse 14, and he walked and labored and loved us. God acts. So idols cannot speak, but God speaks. Idols cannot act, but God acts in the incarnation. God acts in Christmas. God acts in the giving of his son in conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary in a son who is God and man in one person. And there, but there's more. There's more. You need to think about this. 
Maybe we can't get everything out of it that we should. We're, we're finite humans after all, but God acts in his speaking. God acts in his speaking. When God says, let there be light, does he just speak words? He acts simply by speaking. Let there be light, and there was light. No one can do that but God. God acts in his speaking when he creates. And Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God, upholding the universe by his word of power. Jesus Christ speaks, and the universe is upheld, and the stars stay in their patterns, and the cycle of evaporation and rain continues. He upholds the whole universe by his word of power. God acts in his speaking. We can't do that, but God does. Almighty God. And God speaks in his acting. God speaks in his acting. Think of the Israelites waiting at the Red Sea, and the the Egyptians are behind them, and they're cowering in fear, and with the act of parting the sea and bringing his people through and closing the sea on the Egyptians, God has spoken. He has said, I am your protector. I am merciful to you. I love you. I obviously have a plan for you. I'm investing in you. Without actually saying a word, they know all those things, don't they? Because he actually acted in real time and space where the idols can't act at all. All we have is people trying to cajole demons. And so God not only acts in his speaking and creating and in providence, but he speaks in his acting at the Red Sea. It then gets interpreted by Moses to tell God's people what this all means by God himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And finally, then that brings us obviously clearly back to Christmas. The coming in the flesh, the incarnation God speaks in his acting. What does God say to us through the incarnation, through the giving of his Son? God reveals his love. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God revealed to us a love that mere words could not grasp or convey quite in the way that the Word made flesh can and does convey. God speaks in his acting and reveals his love. He magnifies and amplifies all his earlier words. And so with with the Word of God at the baptism of Christ, at the Transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. We have to listen to his words. We have to know this is God's son. And so his entire pattern of life and his way of relating to us tells us so much about God himself. He's not just a prophet like Moses, but one far beyond who fulfills everything that Moses wished for. In Hebrews 1 verse 2, or 1 verse 1, in the past God spoke through these prophets in many ways at various times, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. And then, go through the book of Hebrews. It's probably the most intricate book of the New Testament in its teaching, and, but it's very clear 
that there's one sacrifice for all time by which we're saved, and one high priest, Jesus Christ. But it says that God spoke through his Son in these last days. And where in the rest of Hebrews do we find all the words of Christ speaking? They're not really there. The focus is on the act and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what God speaks through his Son by the very act of mercifully providing his Son. There is something to the depths of the love of God that is revealed. The depths to which God went, the height to which he takes us, the breadth of how many nations he pulls into his kingdom, and the length to which God goes forevermore with everlasting love, saving all those for whom Christ died in one act in Christ with power. And so through the act of the incarnation, as rightly interpreted in the rest of the New Testament, God spoke. He revealed grace and truth, revealed love and forgiveness. The Father and the Son revealed the Son and the Spirit, new life, resurrection, new creation, all in place by the powerful Word of God. And so in Christ, God speaks to us directly And we no longer say, let him speak through another, but we ask for the coming of Christ where we may, in a new creation, see God face to face, speak with him directly, and worship him forevermore and never worry about another prophet dying or a pastor passing away or any other such difficulty. We can commune with God perfectly forevermore because he sent his Son. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are full of adoration for you. We are in awe over the greatness of your revelation, of its wonderful grace and love revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope and our salvation. And now as we hear these things, we turn to you in faith and seek your presence. We seek our Lord Jesus Christ shared with us by the Spirit that we might commune with him and with you, our Father, one triune God. And we pray, nurture that true faith in us, renew it for us, Fill us with awe over who you are. And we pray, Lord, for each other as well and for any who may hear these words and the words that are spoken here each and every Sunday, that you will open hearts. Lord God, that you will use these words in your powerful way to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the Savior of sinners. And Lord God, that hearts would be converted, people would believe and saints would be edified, built up, and strengthened, and your church, Lord, would be a display of your glory till the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to give us hope and confidence in him, and we do ask for the return of our Savior. Trusting you and trusting your timing, we pray, speed it on, let him return soon, and help us be faithful in carrying out the work you give us to do until that day. 
We ask you for a blessed celebration of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that in this time we may truly focus upon the gift of God for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a song of response,